As always, it is my pleasure and a privilege to open up God's Word with you this morning. So if you do have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and open them up with me to the book of 2 Corinthians, of course, as we continue in our series, if you've been with us in this letter, Strength and Weakness, God's Treasure in Jars of Clay. Specifically, this morning, we're headed to the sixth chapter. Uh, So that's where we're going. We're going to look at the first 13 verses there. So again, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. That is where we're headed this morning. But as you're turning there, I wanted to start with a quick story. When I was in college, I was helping out a buddy of mine who ran his own handyman business. And he got called by one of his customers who he recently had done a a pretty large job for. And she was a a single lady who had just bought this giant uh, window air conditioner. And she wanted help putting it in. And so he asked me if I would help him lift this thing and put it in. And so I was along for the ride and we're heading over there. And as we're going over there, he explained to me how this lady literally got in a fight with him because he had offered to do this for free and wanted to do it for free. And she wasn't just giving him a hard time, giving him a little guff, friendly. It was very unfriendly. She absolutely refused to receive his offer of doing the service for free. She wanted to give payment. And he looked at me and he said, you know, that's kind of like us with the gospel. It's kind of like us with Jesus. We have a hard time accepting what he's offering to us for free. And I thought, wow, when do I get my half? (laughs) Just kidding. No, that comment stuck with me. And years before this, I was in high school and I was having lunch with my Spanish teacher at the time, who was a Christian and a pastor. And I would skip lunch to go sit in his office and talk life with him. And one of the times he asked me if I had been baptized. And when I told him that I wasn't, he said, well, why not? And I said, well, there's some things in my life that, you know, I'm not proud of that I need to take care of first. And he said, Ben, haven't you heard the gospel before? You can't clean yourself up. You don't. That's the whole point. That's why Jesus came. That's why he died for you. And I had heard the gospel hundreds of times in my life up to this point. But that was the first time I really heard it in my heart. God wasn't asking me to perform for him, to clean myself up. He was simply asking for me to embrace him and what he's offering to me himself. So whether we don't know Jesus this morning, you're here and you you don't know him, or whether you've known him for years, we all have the same tendency to perform, to try to approach life with this performance-based approach. We view success as something that can be earned And our text today teaches that God measures success very differently. We are always focused on the externals. 
but God is focused on the heart. In fact, he wants your heart. And not just some of it, but all of it. Have you fully embraced Jesus? Have you embraced him as not just the Savior from sin, but the Lord of your life? Or is some small part of you, or maybe a large part of you, holding back? Our text today presses on this subject, and it invites us to do this, to remember the work of Jesus on our behalf, and then to examine how we are responding to that each and every day. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Sound good? All right, I want to pray and ask for God's help for our time in his word, and then we'll read it together. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do pause now before we explore your word together to thank you for it. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for not leaving us to guess at at what you are like and what the meaning to life is and what it's all about and what we ought to do. But you show us these things in these pages of this book. And that's our prayer this morning that you would do just that. Show us, reveal to us anew who you are and the truth you have for us. Take that truth, plant it in our hearts. Help us to understand it, truly understand it in a way that that shapes and molds us, that impacts our actions and how we respond, how we live, not just in the big sense, but day to day. So Lord, we know that you're the one who does that work. And so as we head forward in this task of looking at you and in your word, do that work in our hearts. Do it this morning, we pray in the name of Jesus and through the spirit. Amen. All right, you got your Bibles? 2 Corinthians chapter 6. This is God's word. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, Knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known as dying, and yet behold, we live, as punished, and yet not killed, as sorrowful, and yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, 
but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to, as to children. Widen your hearts also. One of the foundational truths of Scripture is that God speaks. God speaks. We see it from the very beginning of the Bible, and we see it all the way through to its end. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament says that in these last days, in the day that we live, God has spoken to us through his son, Jesus. The writer actually describes the shed blood of Jesus on our behalf as something that is speaking to us, delivering to us the message of the gospel and its invitation to us all to come back to God and be saved. And in our text this morning, we pick it up in this letter, and Paul has just, in chapter 5, laid out the gospel in plain terms. The message of reconciliation, that's the word he uses. Reconciliation, coming back to God. And it's a reconciliation that's made possible by the work of the one through whom God is speaking in this age, through the work of Christ. And his call at the end of that exposition of the gospel in chapter 5 is, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. In other words, respond to the invitation that you have been given. And respond with a yes. Accept his gracious invitation to you. And here in our text, he's continuing that thought with a a similar call. The call in chapter 5, be reconciled to God. And so you're going to hear a similar call here, but it comes in a different shape. It comes in the shape of a warning. What is this warning? Well, let's read it together. Verse 1, working together with him then we appeal to, you to, appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Okay, there's the warning. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. The implication being that this is something that is very possible for us to do. You could actually say, uh, more accurately, something very likely for us to do. It is our bent And Paul is not just talking to unbelievers here, though that warning definitely applies to them as well. He is talking to Christian brothers and sisters. I once had a professor say, I need the gospel as much today as the day I was saved. Is our need for Jesus any less day by day? Our default position is, is self-dependence. We, we think we can do it on our own, and, and we, we tend to take matters into our own hands. We want to be driving the ship. And so we quickly revert to a works-based or a performance-based approach to life. And when we do this, we are doing what Paul here warns about. We are receiving the grace of God in vain. We'll talk more about this in a second. But first, let's look at what else Paul brings into the conversation here in verse 2. In verse 2, he says, For he says, he being God, so again, God speaks in the present sense. In a favorable time, I listen to you. And in a day of salvation, 
I have helped you. Paul here quotes directly from a verse in Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. And this verse is found in the middle of a critical portion of that book, a portion that is all about this central figure in the Bible, very central in the book of Isaiah. He's called in Isaiah, the servant of the Lord. This servant is very clearly the Messiah, the promised deliverer for God's people who had wavered. They'd gone astray from him. And the servant was going to be the one to bring them back fully and finally to God. The servant was going to be the one to reconcile sinful man with a holy God. And that word reconcile should sound familiar in the context of this letter, which we're reading now. Paul has just expounded on the ministry of reconciliation in chapter 5, leading right up to our text. Scripture is very clear that Jesus, who does this reconciling work that Paul talks about, he is this servant of the Lord from Isaiah. So Paul refers to Isaiah here, and the quotation that he uses, it is God talking to this servant. And the servant is asking a question. He's asking for help. And so how do you think God is going to respond to his servant? Well, he says, in a favorable time, I listen to you. In the day of salvation, I have helped you. So God, of course, responds positively to his servant. And he does so with two parallel statements here. So that's two different things. He's saying the same thing two different ways. I listen to you and I have helped you. Very reassuring. Like a reassuring parent who doesn't just say it's okay once and then walks away when the child's crying. No, pats the child on the head. It's okay, it's okay. I'm here, I'm here. I listened to you. I helped you. This is very reassuring. And I bring that up because... The words from God here are not solely directed to to the servant of the Lord, but because this servant Jesus is the mediator between sinful people and a holy God, if we are sinful, then these words are to us because Jesus is our representative. So hear these words directed to you. I have listened to you. I have helped you. God speaks to us. And that is his message to us. And we must notice the timing of God's help. He says here, in a favorable time, I listen to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Now, the original readers of Isaiah, who first read these words, they wouldn't have known exactly when this time of salvation was going to be coming. But the Corinthians, who are reading these words from Paul, and us today who are reading them, we do know when this day is because we are living in it right now. That's what Paul's saying. Look at the end of verse 2. Behold, now is the favorable time, Corinthians. Readers, behold, now is the day of salvation. We know that this is the day of salvation prophesied in Isaiah because the reconciling work of the servant has been fulfilled. It was fulfilled when Christ, in chapter 5, verse 15, let's read that together, when he did this, chapter 5, verse 15, this is how we know it's today, because Christ did this. 
And he, Christ, died for all, that those who live might no, not, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And that verse and the call in it essentially summarizes what Paul is getting at in this text, in our text this morning. He's saying this, the day of salvation is at hand. It's right now. We all live under this new covenant age, ushered in by Christ's death and resurrection. And in doing so, he has made it possible for sinners like us, sinners like you and me to be permanently reconciled to a holy God. He has made a way for unrighteous people to become righteous. He has made a way to do what we could never do for ourselves. He has made a way to save us. And Paul's point is, do not waste that opportunity. This is right in front of you. It's a gift for you. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. Now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. The time to get on board with Jesus is right now. Notice what Paul is not saying. (laughs) He's not saying, take the weekend And think about this. No. He is earnestly urging. It's translated appeal here in the ESV. Perhaps your Bible says, I urge you to not receive the grace of God in vain. This is an urgent plea. And he is urging immediate action. And that's the first fill-in on your study sheet there. That this warning not to receive the grace of God in vain is a call to action. And this is especially true in the context of Paul's argument. Remember, he's just laid out the wonderful reconciling work of Christ on our behalf. But then he, he says something very interesting. That as Christ reconciles us, he calls us to embrace him and his cause, to join him in his saving work. Let's read that together. Let's go back to chapter five. We're gonna pick it up in verse 18. So chapter five, verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The call of those who receive the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ is a call to share that news with others. This is like an ambassador, Paul says, who dutifully represents his king and kingdom wherever he goes. In Christ's death and resurrection, God has dispatched an invitation to everyone everywhere to come back to him and receive grace upon grace in eternal life. And those who do are entrusted to continue to deliver that 
message, the message of reconciliation to the hearts that need it. So to trust Christ is not just to trust him as your savior from sin, but also as the Lord of your life, meaning that you sign off ownership of your life to him. Read chapter five, verse 15, one more time. And he died for all that those who live might no no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. If you have put your faith in Jesus, the purpose of your life must completely change. You are no longer a slave to your own desires and wishes. You are a servant to the king, an honored ambassador with an honored task to represent his name in a world that hates him. I put on your study sheet there that though retirement planning can reinforce this false idea, the goal of our lives is not indulgent inactivity. Indulgent inactivity. We've all pictured what that would look like, right? Daydreamed about it. And that daydream might look a little different depending on what you prefer. You might... You know, picture the proverbial beach where you're, you know, lying on the sand with the the coconut drink with the straw in it, the umbrella. Or you might have something different in your hand. You might have a a fishing rod, perhaps, sitting on your very expensive and well-earned boat. Whatever it is, you've got nothing to do, nothing you have to do, and no place you have to be. That's what I mean when I say indulgent inactivity. It's just some me time. But the point is, that can't be our end goal in life. To finally enjoy some me time. Ease, comfort, self-indulgent. These things sound promising, and they do offer relief and pleasure. But it won't last. And self-indulgence like this cannot deliver the joy, the peace, the security, and ultimately the fulfillment that comes from sacrificially serving God. That doesn't mean that serving God is always going to be fun and exciting and wonderful, but it is what you're made for, and that's what makes it fulfilling. It's what you're made for, and it brings with it a joy and an inner peace that lets you rest when you hit the pillow at night being in the middle of God's will, what he's made you for, doing the works he's planned for you to do. There's no better place to be. And this doesn't just apply to to long-term planning, like retirement, but if all you're doing at work and in your day-to-day struggles is, is longing for the chance to just indulge yourself a little bit at the end of the day, to do what you want to do, what does that say about who you are serving. If you follow Jesus, that means you no longer live for yourself, but for him who for your sake died and was raised. To that end, the Christian life is a call to a life of hard work for the cause of Christ. If you are a recipient of the reconciling work of Christ, 
that means you've been entrusted with the message of reconciliation and commissioned as a co-worker with him in his reconciling work. And this is a work that requires hard work and sacrifice. It requires active listening to God's voice through his word and then being ready to respond in faith when the spirit prompts you to do so. It requires being active, getting off the couch and and getting involved. It requires embracing opportunities when they come your way. And even this, seeking out opportunities that won't ever come your way without some hard relational work clearing obstacles along the way. It means serving in your local church in perhaps a way that is challenging to you. If there is a need that you hear of here at Sunset or, or, or other places, and you think, ah, well, you know what? That doesn't really line up with my skill set or how I'm wired. Consider still stepping up, getting uncomfortable to meet a real need that's there. You might be surprised at how God can use you to do something you thought you never could. And on that note, I want to direct you to the verse I included on your study sheet there. This is from 1 Corinthians. So an earlier correspondence that Paul has sent to these same believers in 2 Corinthians. And in the context, Paul is talking about his own journey to faith and his own ministry as an apostle. And he's talking about how unworthy he is to be an apostle how unworthy he is to be a recipient of God's grace and now an ambassador for it. And this is what he says. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Sound familiar to our text? I worked harder than any of them. Excuse me, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. You know, Paul never would have chosen the path he was on on his own. He wasn't a good-looking guy who had it all together and had been following Jesus from a young age and was this excellent, gifted speaker. Yet God called him to this work. The one who famously persecuted his church He called him to be the spearhead for preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. You want to talk about being surprised at how God can use you? Paul understood that. And that was his only explanation. This is only possible by the grace of God. He says that twice. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And and though I worked hard and diligently, it was only by the grace of God sustaining me through it. But the main reason I included this verse here is for us to see that, that Paul has already laid out for these Corinthians in an earlier correspondence what it looks like to heed the warning that he has for us here in one, What it looks like to not take the grace of God in vain. Paul put himself forward as someone who did that, who heeded the warning, who refused to remain idle. But he says he's one who worked hard. In fact, he would say harder than any of his peers. Nobody could accuse Paul of receiving the grace of God in vain. He remained attentive to God's call on his life 
in the broad sense and in the day-to-day. And he responded, and he remained ready to respond with obedient action. Even when it required getting uncomfortable. Even when it required suffering and pain, tears, hardship. Even when it meant, for Paul, facing death. For Paul, the antidote, the antidote to receiving grace the grace of God in vain was a life of service to God. In this life, you might have a good work ethic or you might not. But what matters isn't just how hard you work, but who you are working for, who you are serving. Who have you made the Lord of your life? You or Jesus? And if you want to know the answer to that, the true answer to that. Look in the details, in the day-to-day decisions you're making, how you spend your time, what you think about most, what you long for, what motivates you and spurs you to act. Remember the example of Paul. His life of servant wasn't just, his life of service wasn't just in the broad sense of a life dedicated to the Lord. But in the moment, day to day, he was attentive to the Lord's leading in his life and obediently responsive when asked to change course. Can you say the same thing about your life? Paul says, behold, now. Now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. There is no better time than now to say yes to Jesus. This applies to those of you who've never put your faith in him as your savior and Lord and to those of us who have. Every day and every moment in it is an opportunity to say no to ourselves and yes to him. And this is an ongoing work, a daily task to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. And one that we can only do by the grace of God. And that right there, I think, is the best and only way we can respond to this warning, to receiving the grace of God in vain. The best way to counter receiving God's grace in vain is to actively lean into his grace day by day. And he offers grace upon grace, a well that will not run dry no matter how many times we come to it again and again, and again. I want to read this quote I came across from former pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago, did other things as well, Pastor Alan Redpath. Listen to this. God's grace is always coming to my heart and life in the very wonderful and blessed experience of now. Yesterday's grace is totally inadequate for the burden of today. And if I do not learn to lay hold of heavenly resources every day of my life for the little things as well as the big things, as a Christian, I soon become stale, barren, and fruitless in the service of the Lord. I thought that was beautiful and challenging. The grace of God is available every day in the big things and the little things, if we would just learn 
to lay hold, as Pastor Redpath says, of what he offers to us all the time. The wonderful grace of God is a grace that's available now. Okay, coming up for air for a second. How are we doing? All right, we spent a considerable amount of time on just the first two verses. We won't continue that pace, I promise. Um, I hear there's some kind of ball game on this afternoon that uh, some of us might like to get to. We spent a lot of time there on purpose, though, because I think those verses really set us up for what is to come. This is the main call of our section. And the rest, verses 3 through 13, which we're about to dive into, they really fit under that. So let's do that. just that. Let's explore those last verses here. Interestingly, what is clear throughout Paul's correspondence and his continual emotional appeals and urging of the Corinthians is this, that, that following Jesus, it isn't always easy. It's not all sunshine and rainbows. It doesn't equal wealth and power and prosperity like they kind of anticipated that it would. Following Jesus doesn't mean all your problems go away. You know this. In fact, following Jesus actually means you're signing up not only for hard work, which we've outlined, but you're signing up to put a target on your back for opposition and attack. And in the midst of this hardship and the hard work along the way, what will be needed is great endurance. And that brings us to the next headline on your study sheet this morning. If we want to be successful, so to speak, if we want to be faithful in God's eyes, great endurance will be needed. And we will see in our text exactly what great endurance looks like and how we can have it. So let's read that together. We can pick it up in verse 3. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Okay, stop there for now. What we have here is Paul putting himself and his ministry partners out there on display as what real ministry looks like. Not what you might expect it to be. This is what successful, you might say, or faithful ministry looks like. Remember the broader context of what Paul is doing in this letter. He's defending himself and his ministry as legitimate, as God-called, God-empowered ministry. And this isn't a pride thing for Paul. This isn't him at the you know, annual apostolic barbecue, like, hey, Peter, let me show you what real ministry looks like. James, hold my wine. He's not bragging. His point is, ministry might not look like the world expects it would. <laughs> it's not going to look like the Christian life, like the Corinthians thought it was going to look. The Corinthians were having a hard time with this. Paul was saying that, look, myself as an apostle, you're doubting me because of all this suffering. Well, guess what? That's a part of what it means to be a Christian. That's part of what it means to be a Christ follower. Just like anybody else, it's going to have its highs, and yeah, it's going to have its lows. 
But again, the Corinthians, they, they were having a hard time reconciling this in their minds because the way they pictured success was much different. The way they pictured what Paul would look like was much different. In their eyes, they expected someone rich, powerful, and wise. And someone who would show all that off with these eloquent speeches. Because these are the things they valued in their culture. But Paul was none of these things. So Paul is continuing his ongoing fight among these people to challenge the way they viewed their world and what they valued and what they hold on to. And so we too then should pay attention to allow our thinking and our value system to be challenged. So let's do that. For the Corinthians, success was earthly prosperity. To them, that meant things like wealth and power and wisdom. It sounds a little like how success is viewed in America, does it not? Prosperity. We actually have a very similar value system. And we also have a very similar tendency when it comes to viewing our world. What I mean is sometimes we think, like the Corinthians did, that if we're going about things the right way, if we're doing what God wants us to do, then our lives are going to go smoothly. Because God will bless us, of course. Similarly, if something goes wrong in our life, we can think, well, then I must have done something wrong. What did I do wrong? Because if I was following Jesus better, then maybe this wouldn't have happened. But that is exactly the type of thinking Paul is challenging here. Everyone, Christians, non-Christians, we go through hard times. And we're going to see in our text that there's all kinds of different reasons why we go through hard times. But in any case, what sets Christians apart, or at least what should set Christians apart, is their ability through hardship, through the lows of life, to be able to faithfully endure as Paul described here, to keep their feet following Jesus when the world and their flesh is telling them to drop and run. So to Paul, prosperity did not equal success. Success is being in God's will, squarely in the middle of his will, and serving his purposes regardless of the cost that comes with that. This has nothing to do with outward appearances, but with a heart that is surrendered to God. And one of the outward evidences of such a heart that's surrendered to God is seen in a person's ability to endure, the ability to keep moving forward when the times are tough. But it isn't just any endurance that marks a faithful servant. Notice the qualifier in verse four. It is great endurance that is needed. Why is this so? Well, because the servant of Christ is called, is called to follow in Christ's footsteps, to carry his own cross just as Jesus did and to follow him on a road that, yes, very much will include suffering. All throughout this letter, we see evidence that the Corinthians, they didn't want to believe this. Paul had to keep telling them over and over again, guess what, guys? The Christian life 
includes suffering. Suffering is a part of what it means to be an ambassador of Christ, to represent him in a fallen world. Recall the words of of chapter four that we are afflicted in every way, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, always carrying in our bodies the death of Jesus, always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies so that people will see Jesus in our great endurance. As some among the Corinthians were using this hardship in Paul's life to disqualify and discredit him, nowhere was he tempted in this letter to shy away from the difficulty of his life. Rather, he shows it off because he's trying to teach them again and again that we have God's treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power to endure, it belongs to God and not to any man. No, Paul's suffering did not disqualify him. It proved his authenticity. The fact that he was able to keep moving forward showed that something greater than Paul was behind him. His endurance pointed to the fact that the gospel is true and the prize of being with Jesus and seeing that grace abound to others is worth the fight and the cost that comes with it. So Paul here is very much not bashful about what comes with being a faithful servant. And so he lists off all these different types of calamities and afflictions and different types of suffering that there is in this life. And if he was a salesman trying to get more recruits to join the team, he wouldn't exactly get his plaque up on the wall, if you know what I mean. But that's not what Paul is doing. He's calling his readers to service to fully embrace their savior and to join them, join him in his saving work. And it might seem like a daunting call, perhaps a task too tall to reach. And on a human level, this is absolutely true. Great endurance is only possible through great power and such power can only come from God. So Paul here lays out the truth once again for his readers. In verse six, we take notice of the word by here, uh, indicating the means by which Paul is able to have this great endurance and the means by which any of us can have this great endurance. So we pick it up in verse six. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. The reason Paul is able to endure is not as much a reason, but a person who is working in and through him. And that person is mentioned by name here, the Holy Spirit. He is the one that produces the purity, the knowledge, the patience, the kindness, the genuine love. It doesn't come from us. He's the one who equips us with with weapons for this battle of life that's going to be hard, offensive and defensive weapons, and he's the one that provides the power we need to faithfully endure. And if you were to picture someone in life going through a hard time who's exhibiting these qualities that Paul lists here, if they're exhibiting in the midst of hardship things like purity and and knowledge and patience and, and kindness and genuine love, 
that means you're seeing the fruit of a greater power at work in their hearts. This is the fruit of the Spirit of God and only the Spirit of God. And inside this list of the Spirit's enabling work, we see a description of what great endurance looks like that, that sets it apart from simply marching forward in life, trudging forward. You see here the manner in which a faithful servant endures. Purity with knowledge, patience, kindness, genuine love. There, there's a theme of sweetness here and fitting that the fruit of the Spirit would be sweet. But what this tells us is in this life, there is a, a right way to endure and a wrong way to endure. Sure, you can keep moving forward in this life despite the opposition and hardship. But if you're doing so with a, a me versus the world type of attitude, if you're doing so with bitterness and a self-righteous spirit that just plows over people who are in your path, then that is not great endurance at all. Great endurance that comes from the Spirit, as we see described here, is kind and patient. It shows genuine love and care for others in the middle of the pressure and pain in your life. And again, life's pressure and pain is, is going to be part of the equation for us. Paul continues to detail the highs of lows of life in verse 8. Let's read it together. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, you see the high and low element. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything." Paul, earlier in this letter, has reminded his readers to look to that which is, not to look at that which is seen, not to look at outward appearances, but to look to that which is unseen, to look with an eternal perspective. And similarly, here he lays out the difference between how the world views things and how God views them. There's an earthly reality and there's an eternal reality, which matters more. And the earthly realities that Paul lists of his life they're all things that his detractors used against him. But he was able to see God's purpose and his goodness in them. You could say he was able to see success or the world saw failure. It wasn't that these earthly realities weren't always true. He was poor. He did suffer. He did have opposition. But there was a greater reality that mattered more. He had Jesus. That last point at the end of verse 10, I think, is so key as having nothing, yet possessing everything. That's something Paul could say because he had Jesus. For to have Christ is to have all. Paul would say it a little differently in his letter to the Romans He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also? with him, not graciously give us all things. As we prepare to close this morning, that must be on the forefront of our minds. As we think about success and how God measures it, it has nothing to do with outward appearances. It doesn't have anything to do with what people think about us, how many times out of the year we make it to church, 
how many different ministries we're involved in, all the good that we're doing. What matters is your heart. God wants your heart. That's why he gave up his son Jesus. Not just to live among us and to relate to us in our suffering and our shame, but to die on a cross, to save us from it. And the call of this passage is to fully embrace he who did that for you. Is any part of you holding back from him? I want to leave us with the challenge of Paul's final words here in our text. In verse 11, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. Paul, there's a strained relationship here with these Corinthians. So he's trying to get them to embrace him as a true apostle. He's trying to, to, to mend the relationship. But he's less concerned about him and the Corinthians just getting along. He's concerned that if they reject him, that means they're rejecting the one he represents. He's much more concerned that they open their hearts to Jesus. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. Open wide your heart. And that's his call to you this morning, to do just that, because Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Would you stand and we'll close together in prayer this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you've made a way for us to be saved. You've spoken to us in the person of Jesus. Help us to receive that word in our hearts, to receive him fully. We know this is an ongoing task for us to continue to lean into you. So help us to do just that as we go and as we are confronted with the hardship of living in this broken world and of having broken hearts as well. Lord, help us to lean on you through it all. We know this is what we need to do more than anything else. So help us in this task as we go. We pray in Jesus' name and through the Spirit. Amen.